Hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for January 7th, 2020, our first Rattlecast of the year. Uh, sorry for the delay coming in, we're having a bit of a technical difficulty with today's guest, Barbara Crooker, um, so we're going to have to do it over the phone, I think, um, uh, but that'll work fine, you just won't be able to see Barbara, unfortunately, but she'll be in over the phone, um, and... So let's keep rolling. Let's uh, let's do this Rattlecast thing. If you have any questions for Barbara coming on later, um, do pass them along through the Skype chat window, and I'll pass them on to Barbara. Uh, we're going to be talking about her book, Some Glad Morning, in just a little bit. And uh, But first, we like to do a uh, warm-up poem as people trickle in, although uh, coming in five minutes late, or eight minutes late, I think um, people are already trickled. But let's try that out. Um, so today for the warm-up poem... Uh, we're going to do, uh, this is today's poem, uh, Poets Respond poem, the, the featured daily poem today. And um, there's some great audio reading by Martina Spada. Uh, so I thought I would play that poem for you. First, let me read the um, the note so you know what's going on here. Uh, this is from uh, Martina Spada. This poem is an elegy for a dear friend and mentor, written to mark the first anniversary of his death on January 8th. Luis Gardena Costa, through his activism, organizing, and vision, not only changed his community in Brooklyn, but the lives of untold thousands like me. Uh, so please see his obituary in the New York Times. There's a link here on the website if you go to rattle.com. And please see the Luis Garden Acosta Legacy Fund at El Puente. And there's a link there, too, uh, if anybody's interested in donating to that. And here is um, Martina Spada reading his poem, um, for his friend Luis Gardena Costa, this is Morir Soñando. Morir Soñando for Luis Gardena Costa, 1945-2019, Brooklyn, New York. I saw the empty cross atop the empty church on South 4th Street, as if Jesus flapped his arms and flew away, spooked by one ambulance siren too many. I saw the stained glass windows I wanted to break with a brick, the mural of St. Mary and the angels hovering innocent as spies over the congregation, and wanted to know why you brought me here, the son of a man punched in the face by a priest for questioning the Trinity, who punched him back. This is El Puente, you said, the bridge. I knew about the Williamsburg Bridge, eight lanes of traffic and the subway stampeding in the open windows of the barrio all summer. You spread your arms in that abandoned church and saw the spinning of a carousel better than any wooden horses pumping up and down at Coney Island. Here, the ESL classes for the neighbors cursed with swollen tongues in English. There, the clinics on contraception, the pestilence in the veins of the unsuspecting. Here, the karate lessons, feet spearing the air to keep schoolyard demons away. There, the dancers in white swirling their skirts to the drumming of bomba. Here, the workshops on Puerto Rican history, La Masacre de Ponce, where your mother's beloved painted his last words on the street with a fingertip of blood. I was a law student, first year, memorizing law school Latin, listening to classical guitar on my boom box as I studied the rules of property. It's mine, it's not yours. 
I saw only what could be proven by a preponderance of the evidence. The church abandoned by the church, the cross atop the church abandoned by the Son of God. My belly empty as St. Mary of the Angels. I told you I was hungry, and we left. I wanted Chinese food, but you told me about the Chinese takeout down the block where you stood behind a man who shrieked about the price of wonton soup, left, and returned with a can of gasoline, splashed it on the floor, and pulled a box of kitchen matches from his pocket. Will you wait till I pick up my egg roll and pork fried rice, you said, with a high school teacher's exasperated authority. So he did. You could talk an arsonist to postponing his inferno till you left with lunch. But you couldn't raise the dead in the ER at Greenpoint Hospital, even in your suit and tie. You couldn't convince the girl called Sugar to rise from the gurney after the gunshot drained the blood from her body. You couldn't persuade the doctor who peeled his gloves and shook his head to bring her back to life, telling him, do it again, an arsonist and medical scrubs trying to strike a wet match. You couldn't jump-start the calliope in her heart so the carousel of horses would rise and fall and rise again. Whenever you saw the gutted church, you would see the sheets of the gurney dipped in red, all the gurneys rolling into the ER with a sacrifice of adolescence. We walked to the luncheonette on Havemeyer Street. A red awning announced, Morir soñando. To die dreaming, you said, from the DR, my mother's island. The boy at the counter who spoke no English brown, as my father called Martin, like me, grinned the way you grinned at El Puente once, St. Mary of the Angels. He squeezed the oranges into a drizzle of juice with evaporated milk, cane, sugar, and ice, shook the elixir, and poured it till the froth spilled over the lip of the glass. Foam freckled my snout as I raised my hand for another. Intoxicated by Morisoniando number three and the prophet gently rocking at my table, I had a vision. ESL classes, healing the jaws wired shut by English, clinics full of adolescents studying the secrets of the body, unspeakable in the kitchen of the confessional, karate students landing bare feet on the mat with a thump and grunt in unison, bomba dancers twirling to a song in praise of Yoruba gods abolished by the priests, the words of Puerto Rican rebels painted on the walls by brushes dipped in every color, pressed in the pages of notebooks by a generation condemned to amnesia. Morir soñando. Luis, I know you died dreaming of South Fourth Street, the banners that said no to the toxic waste plant down the block, or the Navy bombarding an island of fishermen for target practice thousands of miles away. Morir soñando. I know you died dreaming of the gigantes, carnival mascaras bristling with horns that dangle with the angels at El Puente. Morir soñando. I know you died dreaming of the next El Puente. Morir soñando. I know you died dreaming of the hammer's claw, the drill whining to the screw, the dust like snow in a globe, then the shy genius raising her hand in the back of the room. Morir soñando. I know you died dreaming of the poets a stank of weed in the parking lot then stood before the mic you electrified for them and rubbed their eyes when the faces in their palms crowded there waiting for the first word so we could all die dreaming, morir soñando, 
intoxicated by the elixir of the tongue, O oh, rocking prophet at my table. So that was Martina Spada uh, reading his poem, Morir Soñando for Luis Gardena Costa. Um, I'm trying to get, as we were doing that, I was trying to um, adjust. I'm having pro- trouble with Skype here for the first time. Um, at first we thought, um, let's see. At first we thought that Barbara Cooker just couldn't hear me and it was something with her speakers, but my Skype is frozen. Uh, we had her video. Let's see. Uh, I'm not sure if this might cut out. Hmm. We're back and it just started automatically. So, <laughs> so we we're here with Barbara Cooker. I'm sorry for the trouble, everybody. Um, so, so let me just like reset. We'll start from scratch. Let me read uh, Barbara's bio. Um, Barbara Cooker is the author of eight books of poetry, including La Fuaves. How do you say that? Since you're here, might as well. Okay. La Fu- well, so Fuaves. nine books of poetry. This nine is the books. ninth. Okay. And uh, Les Fauves was the Fauves. seventh. Ah, okay. Lay <laughs> and, um, and so your first book, Radiance, which I remember really well. I, I don't know um, if I just randomly <laughs> sent a copy. or I think actually somebody sent a review copy of it. And we have a review on our website. And I read it after the review. It's a great book. Um, that came out in 2005. Uh, it also was a finalist for the Patterson Poetry Prize. Uh, and your most recent book is here, Some Glad Morning, from the Pitt Poetry Series, which is my favorite. I have to be honest. Um, <laughs> I uh, I looked through the Pitt uh, Poetry Series um, website and just picked the poets we'd published because I know I love those books and that's why we have Barbara Cooker here because I thought oh Barbara Cooker's on Pitt now <laughs> I love Pitt so um, I love Pitt too <laughs> yeah so um, so do you want to start us out um, with this awkward introduction but do you want to start us out with a uh, a poem and then we'll we'll talk a little bit. Sure. Well, I thought I'd start off with one appropriate for the time of year. It's called the New Year. Ah, And do say the page number so I can flip to it for everybody really quick. Sure. Um, Page 63. The New Year. When a door bangs shut, a window doesn't open. Sometimes it slams on your fingers. God often gives us more than we can handle. A sorrow shared is a sorrow multiplied. There's a bottle of champagne waiting to be uncorked, but it's not for you. Nobody wants another poem. The prize-winning envelope has someone else's name on it. This year, you already know you're not going to lose those 10 pounds. How can you feel hope when the weight of last year's rejections is enough to bury you? Still, the empty page craves the pen, wants to feel the black ink unscrolling on its skin. In spite of everything, you sit at your desk and begin. Thanks, Barbara. Uh, That's a good sort of poem to start with, uh, because I was wondering, one of the things I'm always curious about is, is why we do this. And that sort of brings up the, the question. Um, how did you get into writing poetry and why the heck do you do it? Despite all the rejections <laughs> rolling in, you know, for all of us. For all of us. Yeah, well, yeah. for one thing, I, I have a poem called 25 Years of Rejection Slips in that first book. And honestly, that was the case for me. Mm-hmm. It was a long time coming. Um, Stephen King said about his writing, well, 
when someone said, why do you write? He said, what makes you think we have a choice? <laughs> and <laughs> I think that's my answer. Um, I think I cannot not write. Yeah, yeah. That was something that um, when when I was in an MFA program, I always felt like I didn't have to. And um, and and other people felt compelled. And it's interesting to watch as, as I like have the option not to sort of I don't really much anymore. <laughs> and so um, yeah. so where do you think that compulsion comes from? Like what what is the source that makes you want to write, though? Like what drives that? See, I think those of us who are writing were born to write and, you know, I'm doing what I was, what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I don't write all the time. Um, I don't, I don't think anybody writes all the time. Uh, there are long dry spells and I'm just coming out of one of them. Um, but then boy, when the poems are coming, mm -hmm. there's just nothing better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't think I like writing. I only like to have written. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so, and, and you, you know, I was doing the math. So you have a son who is in his thirties and you sort of yes. exploded on the literary scene, I'd say, uh, about 2005. Um, so that, so over that 15 years, you've published nine books now, like a book more than every other year. Um, and what was it like before that happened though? Like, were you always trying to publish and it took that long to, um, build up to books and things or was it sort of like you took a whole hiatus? Cause I know you um, studied poetry in college. Uh, did you take a break or was it always working at poetry throughout your whole life? It's been always working at poetry, but getting published was just a whole other thing. Now I don't have an MFA. I'm kind of outside the poetry loop and the son that's in his thirties it has autism. So I've been a caretaker at home with him. And so I was writing all of that time. All those books were written during that time. I just couldn't break into book publication. Ah, okay. So you have this whole like secret stash of poems and books. Is that <laughs> <laughs> I did. And then Pitt came along for this book mm -hmm. and actually asked for the manuscript. Oh, wow. And clean me out. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's so. that's great though. It's great to hear. Um, uh, so people are already asking some questions. I should just say, if anybody has any questions for Barbara, um, I'll pass them along. And because um, this is really we're we're what we're doing is we're sitting around enjoying poetry and getting to meet a poet every Tuesday night. And so tonight we're meeting uh, Barbara Cooker from Pennsylvania. Um, do you want to read like maybe two poems and then we'll we'll do a couple of questions? Sure. Okay. So I'll just pick one that I really like. Principles of Accounting. Okay, and what page? I'm on page 21. Okay. Ready? Yep. Near, principles of Accounting. Nearly summer and the trees are banking on green, calculating their bonuses and numerators of leaves. Outside my window, the crows are ganging up on someone, thugs in their hoodies of night. I'm feeling the day, number of days begin to feel finite, no longer uncountable as blades of grass. So I'm rounding off clouds to the nearest decade, tabulating interest from the sweetness in the air. I'm going for broke in the time remaining, like the mockingbird letting loose his vocals of Fort Knox of sound. I'm going to spend it all. 
Not like a legislature who can't pass a budget, letting one year roll into the next while schools and social services borrow to pay their providers, leaving even less in the diminishing pot for those who need it the most. Road repair, bridges, pre-K? Not sustainable, say the fat cats, lapping up their cream. For the rest of us, the dice are rigged, the loopholes big enough to drive a camel through. From this distance, the older I get, the closer I see the handbasket coming. So let me lean back in this red Adirondack chair as dusk makes us all equal, happy for the blend of herbs and gin, pure sapphire, the dividend of olive at the end. Here comes the night, nothing we can do to stop it, except tote up the stars on a ledger sheet and put every last one of them in the plus column. And that's followed in the book by Dry Martini. I actually have two martini poems in this book, and I did a little martini research, and I came across this wonderful quote from H.L. Mencken, that dry martini, the only American invention as perfect as a sonnet. So I wrote a sonnet. The cold shimmer of a glass of gin kissed with vermouth. Or, as Noel Coward said, waved in the general direction of Italy. E.B. White called it the elixir of quietude. Louis Bunel a reverie in a bar. Let the molecules lie sensuously, calm on top of one another, stirred, not shaken, wrote Somerset Mom. Let's not forget the olives, groups of three, sinking beneath the horizon of the glassy sea. And that was Dry Martini from uh, Some Glad yeah. Morning. Um, so, so, Barbara, the... Um, something that interests me, I felt like this was a poem. Uh, we were talking a little bit as you're trying to get the uh, technical stuff worked out. And um, what I loved about this book was the the amount of praise you have. So it was really interesting to um, um, talk about uh, or hear that, that the poem were elegies originally. Um, and that's because of how you think of the book. Um, how do you think that sort of poetry operates within a sort of praise and and problem solving i kind of feel like that's sort of what goes on with poetry we we sort of have um things that sort of itch at us and don't make sense we kind of put them together through poems and it always feels to me that like positive bits are always overlooked um in poetry are you conscious of that as you write because i was looking through too uh the poems that we've published are yours and there's a lot more positivity in your poems than in most that's a really interesting notion. Uh, I don't think I'm conscious of much of anything when I'm writing. I'm writing. I'm trying to let the poem show me where the poem wants to go. Um, I, I kind of take as my motto uh, something that Wendell Berry said, which is to be joyful, even though you've considered all the facts. And I'm not when we were talking before, it's not that the poems were elegies and they turned into something else. There are elegies in the book. Um, and I think, you know, there's certainly there's some very dark poems in the book um, about the death of my first child, for example. But somehow I'm drawn to joy and it's difficult to write 
happy, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, it is because it seems to me like happy doesn't have a problem. So there's nothing to like work at. That's sort of how, mm-hmm. how it seems to me. And so so when stuff can pop up, I was wondering if you could read um, the second poem in the book. Because today, sure. I just before we went on air and before we had all these problems, I, I saw that there's a, a missile attack from Iran on a um, oh, military base. And, and so this whole thing is escalating. And um, just looking back at this poem, while that was going on on my Twitter feed, um, it's poem ending with a line from a workshop, if you don't mind reading that. It, it really, you know, that there's a sort of grounding that happens when you sort of take in the big picture and think about life in this context or something. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a wise comment. Um, I have to say that, um, you know, one of, one of the reasons I write, I think is to make sense of the world, which doesn't often make sense. And I think my primary impulse in poetry is the lyric, but um, my lyric poems are getting hijacked by politics these days. Yeah. Um, and you know, what happens happens. Poem ending with a line from a workshop on page four, April, and the hills are smeared with pastel chalks, mauve red buds, hopeful green leaves, a scene that might have been painted by Odillon Redon. In Syria, the hills are ripe with bombs, further denuding a country in crisis. Here, early tulips flicker, light up the town square, There, children search the rubble for what's edible. How can we believe in spring when we can no longer trust our own government, the one rising from a swamp of lies? The rocket's red flare, tulips bursting in air. Children with kites in a green park. Children on stretchers poisoned with gas. Families ripped apart. Children searching for candy and eggs. Children looking for their lost parents. The world's plenty. The world's misery. The possibilities for answers are ash. That was another poem from Some Glad Morning. Um, We have a few, you know, we have regular um, watchers here who watch live and they have some great questions all the time um and david cook is one of those and he says um barbara uh you said you took your best poems um from your out of print chat books to put in your selected poems how do you determine what best is <laughs> oh david what a good question um uh, yeah i it, it's almost uh, i edit a small journal and I don't know. To me, the poems that are the best just kind of rise to the top and and sing, and they're the easy ones to pick. Um, I did a lot of editing to make the chat books, so there were all were already some what I thought were some pretty darn good poems in the chat books. So it really wasn't that difficult to just leave out a few. And, and th- that selected poems volume is a bit of a misnomer. That's what that series is called. But um, it's really selected early poems, uh, poems leading up to when I had my first full-length book. Mm-hmm. So I had 12 chapbooks before I had a full-length oh, book. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah, you really have been at it for, for a lot. 
I have been at it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. And Kim Tedrow says, Barbara, how do you help yourself transition from the dry spells to where the poems start coming? Do you have any tips for Kim Tedrow? She's a poet in Nebraska who's uh, also a regular here at the Rattlecast. Hi. Hi, Kim. Um, Yeah, I read. (laughs) I read a lot. Uh, I said this at a conference once and the audience was taken aback, but I actually read every journal I'm in. I read it. I read every journal I'm in twice, once for pleasure and once I take notes. And the more I read, the more it leads me into writing another poem. Uh, well, since you mentioned that, and, and don't say rattle, but um, what are your favorite journals? I do read rattle. <laughs> no, no, I definitely do but, read uh, rattle. But, but what are your favorite journals to read? Like what's out there right now that really you really enjoy? That's a tough question because a lot of the journals that I really enjoy are changing editors. So Poet Lore was one of my all-time favorites, but now there's a new cast of editors and I'm not sure about their selections. Um, I've always liked Nimrod. Um, Ooh, there's so many good places. Valparaiso Poetry Review, an online journal. Mm-hmm. Innisfree Poetry Review, also an online journal. Yeah. Do you, do you um, have a preference uh, between online and uh, in print? Because I find I used to think that print was better. And now I prefer online, I think, because online sort of lives forever. And I, there's a sense I, of like once yeah. you publish in a print journal, it yeah. has like a shelf life and then no one's going to look at it again. But online, somebody could come back to the poem 20 years from now and there's still an Internet, I assume, as long as uh, we don't end the world in thermonuclear war. And uh, people will be, you know, discovering poems. Um, you know, you sort of do you find a poet you like and you do a deep dive and you read all these poems. So, yes. so in a way, yes. online poems to me seem better. I, I guess I'm leading the question here. But, uh, <laughs> well, I think I agree with you. Um, I, a writer that I'm fond of that I was chatting with at a colony, he said, I only want to appear in places where I can hold the book in my hand. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, Okay, I understand that, but I don't think so anymore. I think, you know, it's wonderful that I can collect all of the poems that I've published online and put them on my website, and anybody who wants to find them Mm -hmm. can find them that way. Although a caveat is that journals that um, go out of business sometimes don't continue to maintain their websites. Yeah, 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 that's true. What do you think is it about print? Do you think print will last? you know, you've published nine books and twelve chapbooks, apparently. Do you think? Um, do you think there's something that 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 adds that you don't get through digital medium? I think there's something wonderful about holding a book of poetry in your hand and having the cover art and the feel of the paper. I mean, I think it's the way I want to read books of poetry. Um, But having said that and having spent a lot of really um, hard work and careful time putting a book together, doing the ordering, I hear from readers all the time that they just kind of like to flip open to a, a poem in the same way that musicians construct their cds or albums and then people want to listen on spotify <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a good comparison and i find i do i do the same thing too i mean i just um i shouldn't admit it but i, I always take a, a poetry book to the bathroom and read one <laughs> in the bathroom and that's Why a beautiful not? thing for that and then you you know you find things and then it goes from the shelf of like maybe i'll read someday to i'm going to read this whole book soon and that's kind of sort of how it works for me um yeah yeah uh, do you want to read a few more Sure. I'm going to read Butter on page 16. Okay. And again, I got a wonderful epigraph. Butter, 
Give me butter, always butter. Fernand Poin, a French chef. Kneeling on green grass beside the still blue water, an Indian maiden, or shall I say Native American woman or first person, holds out a yellow box of butter as if it were treasure. And she's also on the box, which turns her into one of those endlessly repeating images in a convex mirror beloved by Renaissance painters. Behind her, there's a large red O, the sun also rising. Even the sky is pale yellow, thick as Irish cream. In this, the age of low-fat cholesterol watching, butter has been shunned. We've forgotten the pleasure of a single pat turning liquid, a golden lake atop a small hill of mashed potatoes, the gilding of a slice of raisin toast, or the slow sinking into the crevices of a Thomas's muffin. During the war, butter was rationed. My mother bought oleomargarine, which came in white blocks. We helped her knead in the dot of red dye, which restored it to dairiness. Let, it, let us imagine it might have come from a cow, not a chemist. Now we live in a time of plenty where supermarkets are fully stocked. Can't imagine lining up for hours only to find that there's nothing left, that no matter how many dollars you have, it's not enough, nothing to buy. And yet we know or should know what's coming as we ignore the warnings about climate change, drowned cities, crop failures, scarcities. Somewhere in the future, a small girl will unearth this box as she sifts through garbage looking for treasure. She will sound out the word with something like wonder. She will ponder sweet cream, salted, try to imagine the taste, something rare and wonderful from the world that disappeared. Yeah, that's a great example of, of what I was talking about for praise. There's a weird way that the poems in this book seems to me sort of to be a slap in the face saying, you know, it's bad, but it could be worse. <laughs> and so enjoy, enjoy what's here, like the butter. And, um, and, and I, don't know, I really appreciated that. Or how about let's really look at what's here, yeah, what's in front of yeah, us, yeah. whether it's the world outside or something wonderful to eat. Um, but think about what it's what it might be like if we don't have these things anymore. Mm -hmm. One of my poems, not from this book, um, someone uh, wrote to me with a request uh, to, for a, an anthology that will come out, but not until 2021, oh. of um, all the th things that we're going to lose with climate change. So my poem's about olive oil. I'm afraid there's a poem about chocolate and probably something about wine in there. I mean, all of the things that make life worth living that we might lose. Mm -hmm. um, how about how about a poem that's all right? This is elegy, but this is um, probably the most different elegy you'll hear. Um, a poem that combines. Zumba and the National Basketball Association. It's on page 47 and it's big man. 
And it's for my buddy, Daryl Dawkins, who is an NBA great and a member of my Zumba class. Oh, wow. We saw him twice a week on the dance floor. This huge man, nearly seven feet tall, surrounded by us middle-aged, out-of-shape women. Big man, big smile, and a hug for everyone. Which, for me, meant being pressed by a waistband. Later, we found out he was a basketball star, played for the Sixers, invented the slam dunk, even named them. Rimwrecker, look out below, yo mama. He could faint, take his man to the hole, then soar over his head to the backboard, which fractured in an explosion of lethal confetti. Looked like he could fly. Earthbound now, in class he was one of us, carrying the weight and freight of age, aching hips, bad backs. Shimmy left, merengue right, do that booty roll, swivel what hurts. Oh, Daryl, death's point guard has taken you down with a sharp elbow to the ribs. Shine on. In that great gymnasium of the night sky, may your light rise up, join the jagged pieces of shattered blackboards that some people call the stars. Yeah, I like that one a lot. And that was, uh, you know, I, I remember Daryl Dawkins, uh, you know, watching the NBA. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chocolate yeah. Thunder. Yeah. Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder <laughs> gave him that nickname. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he really was the nicest person I've ever met. Oh, I bet, and, yeah. You know, when you go to, say, um, AWP and you see people who are, who'll be talking to you, but they're looking around for somebody more important to talk to. <laughs> Daryl was the opposite mm -hmm. of that. Daryl had a smile for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great to hear. Um, I see another, another question from David Cook. Uh, he says, your poems with the theme of grief are powerful, prolific, and popular. Are there poems that, when you read them, bring you tears every time? Uh, yours or someone else's poem. He mentions uh, Updike's Dog Death is his, his poem that makes him cry. Oh, yeah, that, oh, that would, yeah, that poem would make me cry, mm -hmm. too. Um, I think, you know, when you when you go on, when you perform poetry and you read the same poems over and over again, um, you you end up with a certain distance, which allows you to read them without breaking into tears. Mm -hmm. um, I have a poem um, in uh, one of my other books uh, about my middle daughters. Um, she had a traumatic brain injury when she was a senior in high school and she was in a coma for nine days. And I thought I could never read that poem in public, but I ended up reading it a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So the, there is something about practice and repetition that allows you to have the distance to to still read with feeling, but to not yeah. completely break down. Mm -hmm. Do you, Do you find that you cry a lot while re while writing? I guess in the process oh, of it. Yeah, sure, mm -hmm. sure. And there, you know, certainly there is a poem here about the death of my first child, which I haven't. Well, I haven't read any of these poems aloud, actually, because the book has just come out. Um, I think it's personal history. I could read that one. It's on page ten. Yeah, yeah. Please do. And we'll we'll see if I can read it without crying. Okay. Personal history. Tell me about the light you have lost. It was the breath of my first baby, the one never taken. The doctor's words, sharp 
as scalpels. Her skin on my fingertips, petals of heliotrope. What tools do you need to recover? Paper, pen, blood instead of ink. The pollen of memory clings to my sleeves. As small as the wind's shadow, the fleeting glimpse of her face. And it's a subject I've written about, um, I don't know how many poems, maybe 10. Um, there's certain subjects that I think I'm done writing about, and then another angle or another poem comes. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I feel like poems come from mysterious places, and my job is to stand out of the way and put them down on paper and, and then craft them later. How, how far into um, your writing process? Well, actually, first of all, because I... Um, can you explain your writing process a little bit? And then I was going to ask, how far into your writing process do you know where it's a successful poem? Like, is there a spot where you know, like, oh, this is doing something as opposed to, because I, because I know you write, you know, often and by hand, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an excellent question. I, I remember the, the movie Shakespeare in Love. It's a mystery. And I, for me, writing poetry is a mystery. Um, I can put every bit of craft I've got into poems that end up dead on arrival. They just don't lift off the page. They don't sing and dance. And I don't really know why. Um, talking about my writing process sounds like something um, a little more organized than I am. I sit down there and I just... Um, kind of chip away at it. I tend to write big and then edit small. So I, I, I write a lot of junk and then in the editing process, try to cut away everything that isn't really a poem. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes wonderful little poems just come out almost fully formed. And I don't know what, what happens to make them come out that way other than I think it's all the unsuccessful poems. It's kind of like they come on the back of, of those poems. <laughs> like, like you're due, like the universe is throwing you a bone or something to, yeah, to, keep, yeah. to keep you going. Cause you know, we're the eyes no. and ears and, and heart of the universe kind of as human beings. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I mean, I think that maybe some of, sometimes we're afraid of writing bad poems. There's nothing wrong with writing a bad poem. You just, don't have to try to publish it. <laughs> they are better left in the drafts folder. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever published a poem that you sort of didn't think you should have? Do you that you regret later? So far, no. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, I I can say I think some poems are more successful than others, but not ones that I wish I hadn't published. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, why don't you read a couple more? Um, okay. And, and well, uh, I should say again, if anybody who knew people are joining us in now that we're actually, um, I told people to come back at six or at 45 <laughs> after, and we came back on without me even realizing at 630. So um, there are new people here. If you have a question for Barbara, you want me to pass along, just leave it in the chat. Also, um, despite the technical difficulties, if you like this broadcast, do click the like button and um, share it and make sure your friends subscribe. Uh, after the fact, we'll cut out the uh, long delay and it'll still be good. So you won't have to be embarrassed by your like. So click that like button if you would. It helps a lot. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so Barbara, right. what do you have for us next? Okay, so let's do something different. Um, 
One other area um, that I keep going back to um, is ekphrastic poetry. I have a lot of ekphrastic poems, poems about paintings. Um, in this particular one, the impulse, you know, normally I don't write to other people's suggestions. I think there's, there's uh, the phrase that I hate the most is, oh, you should write a poem about this. <laughs> that immediately makes me not want to write a poem oh, yeah. about whatever just, that is. Just, that's a poem, that comment. Is... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything no, that happens in life it was a poem. Yeah. No, no, it's not a poem. Um, but in this case, this was... Um, an invitational anthology. And each person that was invited to participate in this anthology was supposed to first create a still life, then take a photo of the still life, and then write a poem about it. Well, I spent a couple of months and nothing was coming to me at all. And then we were in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and I realized what was happening and I said to my husband, stop, we're going to just stay here and I'm going to take a picture in a few minutes and then I'm going to be able to write this poem. So here here it is. The Ball du Moulin de la Galette, which is a painting by Pierre-Auguste Renoir. In what page? I'm on page 31. Jostled and elbowed at the Musée d'Orsay by people clicking first at each painting and then at its attribution. I start to realize no one's looking at the canvases, just their screens. And so my nature more composes itself as I wait by the leather banquettes for a few still minutes until a flock of cell phone users settles like pigeons on a park bench, more interested in checking messages and posting on Facebook than watching Renoir's dancers whirling and dipping, light and shade stippling their stiff dresses, their serge suits, their rosy skin. Here in Montmartre, on a Sunday afternoon, the hall is bathed in sun filtering through the trees, dappling the woman in the blue and white striped dress, the men with their straw boaters. Even the glasses on the table ring with song. But on this Sunday, in the museum, none of this registers. Hunched over, waiting for the ping of incoming, faces laved in pixelated light, drawn to the world of two dimensions, thumbs are the only things moving. A faint hint of batter sizzling in butter enters the room, along with distant phrases of accordion music. You can almost hear the turtle doves twitter and tweet in the far off trees. So just one little comment is that nature more is the French word for still life. It, it means dead nature, but um, so there, that reference possibly needs an explanation. And the moulin de la galette, the galette was a kind of a thin cake. So that's the butter and the batter in the last couple of lines. Mm -hmm. 
But um, such an irony that here, here's this fabulous museum and nobody, but I mean, nobody is looking at the paintings. They're only looking at their phones, taking pictures of the paintings. <laughs> well, that's the world so we, was, we live in now. Um, it is. About ekphrastic poems. Um, do you have any advice? Because yeah. we have that. We do it once a month, an ekphrastic challenge. I know. Where, uh, I know. It, and it's interesting. You know, you don't have the, the painting with it. Um, do you think that, um, does it make a difference if you're going to show the painting uh, with a poem or not? Are you trying to partially describe what's going on here? Um, well, I think you always want to give um, the the reader of the poem a li- some reference points to the painting that's in front of you. Now, I noticed in your ekphrastic challenges, you're using some very modern stuff that people won't be familiar with. Um, I tend to be writing about... Um, paintings that people can Google on their phones <laughs> so that they can see them. And there's a wonderful journal called the Ekphrastic Review, which which gets the images and pairs them with the paintings so that a lot of my work has appeared um, it, like it's kind of a secondary market because they've uh, appeared in literary journals first, but then the Ecrastic Review also selects oh, some of them. It's always nice when people do that. Yeah. You know, have yeah. a new sort of life. I always thought that there should be um, so local poetry magazines where something that there's sort of a niche that nobody does. If you had like all the local oh, yeah. poets republishing poems in a, yeah. in a magazine locally. Um, but the same kind of thing. It's really nice to have some, you know, second lives because uh, poems deserve yeah. more than one. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's also something I've been learning, um, say, doing workshops on ekphrastic poetry. I mean, it's nice to have a slide up on the on a white screen so that people can all write about the same uh, uh, painting. But if the the visual isn't working that day, you can just have them all take out their phones and yeah. find the painting. <laughs> that sort of brings something else up, too, because you mentioned that you tend to write about older paintings. And I, I was looking at an interview you did uh, somewhere else. And um, you talked about how originally as a writer, you were writing in an old style. Um, and somebody said to you, um, you know, read some modern poetry, but, you know, way back when you were in college. Oh, um, oh, yeah, do, yeah. Do you think there's a way that you're, you're drawn to the past for, for any reason? Well, I think that was simply um, um, a, a question of where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. I had taken a class on contemporary American writers in, as an undergraduate, and they were all dead white males. Yeah. <laughs> so that was just me not really uh, aware of the world of contemporary poetry. And there was a wonderful um, fiction writer named Daisy Baber. He's, he's now uh, passed on. But he looked at um, the manuscript I had at that point, and I was a very beginning writer then, and he said extremely gently, but you need to be reading your contemporaries. And he really set me on the writing path. You know, again, because of my family circumstances, I wasn't able to get an MFA. When I started writing, the only MFAs were at University of Iowa, places where you'd have to leave your family. And I had three small children. Um, so I, I feel like I got the MFA of the 3,000 books because that's about how many poetry books I have mm-hmm. that I've just you know, bought and studied and um, taken out books from interlibrary loan and, and studied on my own. Mm-hmm. But I've actually never taken a, cl- a, a workshop or a class from somebody else. Oh, really? Not a single one? 
I'm I'm in Fogelsville, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I'm in the suburbs or the country above Fogelsville, Pennsylvania, which is two blocks long. <laughs> so I'm completely isolated. Oh, wow. yeah. But with the you know, who knew the internet would would happen? And you know, that's connected us all in ways that are amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really has. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Um, you mentioned, you know, being a mother and, um, you know, in a, with a special needs son too. Um, can you talk about how do, how do you find time to write as much as you do, um, given all your responsibilities? Do you carve out certain windows that you sort of give to yourself or is it just when you can? Is there is there a process that you've um, managed to do it? Well, um, you know, when the, the two older girls... Um, who are not really children. One of them is close to 50. Um, but um, I was writing all along. Uh, maybe I was writing during nap time. Then maybe I was writing during nursery school. And then they'd go off to school. And then, oh, my goodness, I'd have another baby. Um, when my son came along with m- many more severe needs and, and more needs of my time, um, I still tried to find time every day to write. Um, that That's um, Evan Bolan, the Irish writer, said when her children were small, some days I only wrote a line. Some days I only wrote part of a line, but every day I wrote. Mm-hmm. And when I wasn't writing, I was thinking about writing. And I think that's the case for me as well. Um, but around 1990, I think, I got my first uh, residency at an artist colony, um, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. And I think I only went for seven days, maybe, or nine days the first time. And I realized, okay, if I could come back here again in 18 months, because that's kind of the space they like between residencies, I can not only keep writing, I can save my own life. Mm -hmm. And um, that place has been a magical place for me. Now, I've I've branched out. I had a couple of residencies at their studio in France, and I had a couple of residencies at the Tyrone Guthrie Center in County Monaghan, Ireland. Um, Just give me some time alone, and I'll start writing. Mm -hmm. Can can you say a little bit more about that, um, how it saved your life? That's always something that I feel like, you know, I enjoy poems, but one of the things that we do by publishing and, and sharing poems is just allowing poems to be, which is such a good thing for, mm-hmm. for everybody's mm-hmm. soul as they write them. Um, so so mm-hmm. how did poetry save your life? That was an interesting thing to say. Well, I'm not sure poetry saved my life so much as being able to step away from my life as a caregiver. Um, and, you know, raising a child with autism is not a walk in the park. Um, I'm happy to say that as a 35-year-old, he's a a very nice young man, um, very kind and very sweet. Um, But, you know, it simply gave me back my own life, which is the life that everybody else would take for granted, that you could go to the bathroom by yourself, that you could take a shower by yourself, that you could go for a walk without having to get a babysitter. Uh, Just a lot of things like that. And I find that when I'm at a colony, When you take away domestic responsibilities, (laughs) such as food preparation, there are a lot more hours in the day. And I basically dive in. I have some ideas of things I want to pursue. And I read, write, and walk for as many hours as I can be upright. (laughs) And I I find that in in a two-week residency, I can get a year's worth of work done. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. 
or even more than a year's worth of work done. Because I'm actually I'm actually a very slow writer. I'm just a very old writer at this point <laughs> and have had a backlog of phones. <laughs> um, yeah, well, thanks so much, Barbara. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Do you want to read maybe one or two more poems and then to close us sure. out? Sure. Let me give you a short, fun poem. Um, Another thing that's been pretty wonderful for me is Garrison Keillor reading poems on the Writer's Almanac, which is not something I ever imagined would happen. And he happened to read this one recently, and it was on my husband's birthday, which was just such a nice coincidence. Home Cooking, page 72. Let me stir up a batch of something hot, beef stew or red bean chili, something simmering just below the boil. You let me know if it needs more seasoning, more spice. Let me spread some butter on your cornbread, darling. Let it soak into all the cracks. Let me fill your glass with something red and juicy. The oven is hot and all the burners are glowing. If you can't take the heat, then get out of my kitchen. But if you need to take the chill off, baby, I might be able to dish a little something up. <laughs> Let me ask about that before we do the, the last poem. Sure, um, sure. How, why do you think uh, Garrison Keeler loves your poem so much? I um, like how did I how did no that idea. happen? Like, you know, I have no idea. You know, he's read no. so many of them, and I listen all the, you know all the time. That I actually while reading this book. I hear it in his voice sometimes. Like some of the poems I actually hear in his voice from how often you've been on that, which is huh. just a cool thing. Um, it's a very cool thing. I don't actually ever get to hear it because um, I, my NPR station's out of Philadelphia and they never carried the show. Oh, we don't even and have although, radio here, so I listen online, which is how I Yeah, and I know. I could listen to it online, but I never do. So I, I've actually not heard him read it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but how does it, how has it happened? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I assume he has scouts, people who read through books and journals, but I really don't know. My only contact has been with the permissions editors. Oh, really? Hmm. And it's just been a wonderful thing, but But, it's also mysterious. Because this poem poem was just on like, like a week ago, right? Or was that? Yeah. 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 Yeah, December 28th, my husband's birthday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a nice present. And he actually had read one from my previous book, The Book of Kells, um, on my birthday. Oh, wow. November wow. 21st. So See, something, there's something weird that goes on in the universe. I don't know what it is. And, uh, <laughs> and poetry taps into it somehow. But, but. Yeah. Um, so uh, sometimes when I'm reading poems at colleges, I feel like I have to gloss some of my materials from a previous age, like typewriter, something which preceded a word processor. And in this one, I I am referencing an instrument called the telephone. Okay, I'm on page nine, regret. Regret, nothing. Not those years when you were a single mother, bologna casserole, and not enough money for heat. Or the years before, the ones trying to please a man who couldn't be happy, no matter how hard you tried to replicate his mother's recipes. The marinara wasn't sweet enough. The lasagna didn't have enough layers. 
Don't regret the years that went up in smoke, the glamour of the lit match, the first drag, the curls that rose to decorate the ceiling. Or the years as a waitress, the customers who stiffed you on tips, which were quarters and nickels back then, every thin dime counting. Instead, remember your friends, those hours on the telephone, the artery of the long black cord, a river of voice. Don't tell me that broken places make you stronger, and I won't mention silver linings. Sometimes there are scars. Sometimes it rains. Stop looking for the friends who aren't here, the ones whose faces you sometimes glimpse in a crowd. The past is the grass growing under our feet, the dirt beneath it, what feeds it. Remember that nothing is ever lost. Uh, beautiful poem. Thanks so much. Barbara, that was well, Barbara Cooker you. reading uh, Some Glad Morning, which is just out from Pitt Press. I hope everybody picks up a copy and enjoys it. I just loved reading the book. Um, I read most of it in my uh, dentist office waiting room. And um, <laughs> I just really, really, really reading it for pleasure. And I kind of forgot to um, read it to interview you. That's how much I enjoyed it. So I hope everybody can pick up a copy. Thanks so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure to hear your poems and your voice instead of Garrison's. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Tim. It was very kind of you to have me yeah, on the show, yeah. and I love everything Rattle does. Well, well, thank you. We'll have to have you on again with the next book. Okay. And, and hopefully the whole technical stuff will be fixed by then, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, by the next book we'll be doing holograms. Yeah, probably. Or... <laughs> You'll be a little, little figure on my desk. <laughs> 3D projections. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks, thanks Barbara. Um, great to talk to you, and I hope you have a good night. Thank you. You too, Tim. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, so that was uh, Barbara Cooker uh, reading Some Glad Morning, which is a beautiful book um, by, by the Pitt Poetry Series. Uh, you can buy that. Well, her website is barbaracooker.com, so, so check it out there and, and look at all her books. Now, uh, we're going to do you know, a hard break here and um, put on some bumper music and a uh, splash screen, and then we're going to go to the open mic afterward for people watching uh, live on YouTube. And uh, for the podcast version the uh, open mic is going to be included so i will just see you next week and uh, next week we will have clint margrave that's january 14th uh, 9 p.m eastern clint margrave is the author of salute the wreckage he's been around a bunch of times including the current issue and the next issue uh, he's in the tribute to kim edinizio issue because he was one of her students um, and that will be next tuesday night see you then <laughs>